Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Thursday, April 30th, 2020. Headlines in the papers filled with stories about the Republicans have lost their freaking mind. They're filing one lawsuit after another against J.B. Pritzker, the state of Illinois. It's all about trying to promote uh, Donald Trump. It's not about looking out for the health and safety people uh, in the state of Illinois. That's me speaking. That's my view. But that's not what we're going to talk about today uh, on this bonus show. Uh, today's bonus show will be a continuation of our ongoing cannabis conversation. Uh, Lisa Solomon from my beloved Chicago Reader lines up some great guests for us to uh, interview and talk to about the issues in the cannabis world. So, Lisa, before uh, we do a reader promotion, we're going to hold off at the end. Why don't you take this opportunity to introduce our distinguished guest? Uh, always good to be here with you, Ben, and thrilled with today's guest. I've got Richard Wallace here, who is the founder of Equity and Transformation. Richard is a social entrepreneur and thought leader who's received multiple awards and special recognition for his innovative approaches to community organizing to advance social change and to increase equity for those most excluded from society. A lot of you might remember a few years ago when they began producing CTA rail cars in Chicago again, well, that was thanks to Richard, who organized this and brought 175 union jobs for disadvantaged Chicagoans. So Richard is someone who I want to be when I grow up. So <laughs> I'm going to let I'm going to pass it over to Richard now so he can tell you more about how he got into what he's doing and just share a bit of his story. Richard, welcome to the show. Oh, hello, everybody. Thank you for the the. the Amazing introduction. Uh, my name is Richard Wallace. I'm the founder uh, of Equity and Transformation, and I was an artist. I got—I always got to leave with the art first because uh, I think it, I bring it along with me everywhere I go. An artist in the city of Chicago for a number of years, who made a transition into uh, community organizing. Um, and luckily, I was perfect time. And I also want to lift up the the hard work of the JMA team, who did a lot of the work uh, to bring in that rail car procurement. Um, uh, to bring rail car development back to the, the Pullman area. Um, Cassie McFadden, uh, Cassie B Bob Bayer, 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 and Madeline Janice and Linda Nugent um, and all the folks at Jobs Move America who made that work happen. Um, and I was just a piece of that puzzle. And I'm grateful that um, rail car development is back in the, in the Pullman neighborhood. 
Um, so yeah, I'm grateful, happy to be on the call. Thank you, Ben, for calling me in, and uh, yeah, and I'm excited to be on the call today. All right, Richard, let's uh, take the opportunity to introduce you to my listeners. This is your first time on the show. You're well known in the city of Chicago, but take a moment. You're uh, you and I chatted briefly before we did the interview. And uh, you told me a little bit about yourself. You're from Chicago. Give us a few more details. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I came up in Chicago. I was born, actually, out in, in St. Stephen's Projects. Um, and then my mom made that, that, that fatal decision to move out to Downers Grove, Illinois. Mm. She thought it would get me into a better, better, a better lifestyle, a better way of life. Uh, all of those things that we thought about back in the day, I guess that's what my mom was contemplating. Um, and I ended up going to prison. Uh, so it didn't work out as well as she assumed. I uh, ended up graduating high school at IYC St. Charles. And then at that time, I was just like, forget the suburbs and came back to the city and ended up uh, now, living on the north side. All right. Now, uh, for... I don't know how many of my listeners know this, but when uh, when I was talking, uh, well, nobody knows this, but when I was talking to Richard, he says, I go, so Richard, where'd you go to high school? He goes, well, I went to high school at St. Charles. I go, the St. Charles? Uh, because yeah. when I was a kid, Richard, like St. Charles was the juvie school. Wait, I didn't, I'm from Evanston. So I didn't, it's like the concept of St. Charles, it seemed like another universe. Uh, I'd never been to St. I mean, literally the town itself, but there was this kid in uh, my junior high school who got sent to St. Charles for stealing a car. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but he stole a car in seventh grade. He's a pretty enterprising young man. Anyway, uh, tell folks yeah. what St. Charles is all about. I was, it was a juvenile prison. Um, it was not a fun place. I mean, I think I, I can remember and recall the movie Bad Boys. I think we laughed about that earlier um, because I, when I was there, I was like, oh, wow, that's what that's from, right? Like, I remember a scene from there. That's where he got the, the vending machine where he got the sodas out to go beat the guy with the sock, you know, like all of that. Yeah. And I think they made it a lot more gruesome than it actually was while I was back there. It's in no way, shape, or form of my saying this is a pleasant place to be. Um, but it wasn't what I assumed, you know, walking in the doors. But it was, it's a, it's a, when you get there, it's a big campus, essentially, of, of, of selling houses. And um, I was in Douglas. And, uh, yeah, it was um, a life-changing experience. Um, I think I spent two years there. Um, and, yeah, it definitely was it's, – it's part of my story because I think it's, it's always – it's like the reason why I'm always going back uh, to the community, regardless of where I land, uh, whether it was hip-hop or uh, – or organizing, it's always been a way to go back and reach like the younger me. I think um, to um, to I mean, and if I would have gotten some of the keys that I got later on in life, maybe I wouldn't have made the decisions I made. Um, but at the same time, it's just kind of like you know that was the that was a that was a two year stint in my life where I think I learned more about myself than. I ever have in my entire life, right? Regardless of, you know, I, and I graduated from Roosevelt University with honors and all of that stuff, right? But I think the the thing, my my education started there. Um, and then it began, then it kind of grew out of that experience into other facets of my life. Now, Richard, was it was there like any one moment of revelation when you... Uh... Were in St. Charles? Yeah, or was it just a gradual uh, transition? It was a gradual transition. I think while I was back there, I think 
it was the first time that I got a chance to like be alone in my thoughts. I think like being a young adult, right? Like you have, there's all of the different public pressures to, to kind of like, you know, to, to you, you got to be in the cool clique or whatever the hell the pressures are, you know, peer pressure is real. Um, and um, I think back there, it was like my first opportunity to be, I didn't have to conform. You know what I mean? I think it was, um, I was alone. I had time. I like did things like read books. And I don't really know at 16 many folks who were reading books. But I was reading a lot of books while I was back there. So I think a lot of my, my like that kind of organic intellectual piece, it started back there. Cause I, I mean, just access to, you didn't have, you had a lot of downtime. So my studies went up. Um, and then I, I was back there helping other folks get their GEDs. I think that's one of the highlights. And I got like a really good job while I was back there because I was working in general merchandise with this guy named uh, Quates. And he every once in a while I would get off, you know, off-site food like Burger King and things like that that would really excite me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember all of those, you know, all of those things that went into uh, my IYC experience. And um, I ended up, um, you know, getting lucky and getting into a program that they had there that was called Chan. Um, and ended up getting uh, getting into Northern Illinois University uh, to go to school from there. So I literally was home about two months and then went out to Northern Illinois University. So that was a big shift. You know, you go from no freedom at all to all the freedom in the world overnight, yeah. uh, which is a very, <laughs> very challenging time. Needless to say, I didn't make it uh, all, two, all four years and ended up getting my degree at Roosevelt years later. But yeah. Uh, now the sounds like that giving component has been part of your nature since you were young. You just fell into that naturally. Yeah, my mom um, definitely was the she was the she was the reason. Like she stayed by my side the whole time I was there. Um, she started a prison ministry back in the eighties, um, so she was doing a lot of work behind the prison walls, and she would send me resources. She had, she had known how to navigate um, the lives of folks that were incarcerated, so she did a really great job at like bringing me the materials necessary to keep me educated. So she would bring me books and, uh, and just, you know, provide emotional support for me that like it wasn't over and that, you know, and she never treated me like I was formerly incarcerated when I came home. She was just like, all right, you ready to get to work, you know? Um, so, you know, she definitely played a big part in that, you know? Now, now Richard, one of the persistent themes on this cannabis conversation, uh, when Lisa and I bring on guests, uh, is the fact that the movement to make uh, cannabis legal, and it's taken me, uh, as Lisa can detest, like six months to call it cannabis as, call, as opposed to calling it reefer. So I'm doing a really good mm-hmm. job here, Richard. Uh, but uh, the um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the impetus to, uh, uh, to make it legal uh, grows out of the way it was unfairly the laws were unfairly uh, administrated so that black people got punished for doing something that everybody did, white people in particular. Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that was one of the first provisos that the legalization law was going to address. Uh, and the second one, of course, was to uh, make sure that going forward, uh, black people would get a stake in the growing uh, cannabis industry. So let's take it. Two, two things at once. Number one, the whole issue of people who are unfairly punished. In your humble opinion, how has the new law handled that matter? Whew. Um, 
you know, I want to commend uh, Senator. Is it? Yeah. So I want to. I want to commend Toy Hutchinson, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Sonia Harper, Kelly Cassidy, Heather Stain, for listening. Right. Um, I think in in policy, the first thing that you want when you have elected officials is the ability for them to listen to the people. And when we first got, you know, wind of the recreational cannabis uh, legalization in the state of Illinois, we were, we, we had to stop everything we're doing and begin to pay attention to that one campaign, right? Um, because what I've seen and what I've, what I noticed is that historically occupations that exist in like the street economies, once they become legalized, you, there's a, there's a lack of retention in like black bodies, right? Um, if you look at alcohol manufacturing, you see that if you look at, um, you know, so, so bootlegging alcohol, open market, everybody was doing it. Right. Some of the best recipes came from black folks. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and once it became legalized, you can't find a black alcohol manufacturer. Now we have brands, you know, like Ciroc, which is a label they throw on a bottle, but the actual production of the alcohol doesn't happen, um, is it, is it owned by that practice isn't owned by us. Right. So, um, when I saw it, it was like immediately we had to, we had to, we had to engage. And I think that, um, through that engagement, we had to focus on the impact of the war on drugs on particular populations. Right. And, 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 and for equity and transformation, that's black, um, disadvantaged community and communities and, and, and residents. Um, and, and to see that, like, I mean, it was, it was, it was obvious, fairly obvious that African-Americans were interested in the cannabis market before legalization, right? And you can tell that by the arrest records, right? Like you can tell that folks were going around, getting arrested for for cannabis at, at an early age, and it was it would start the cycle of of, of uh, incarceration in a life, right? So it's something that starts with like I'm smoking a joint and I'm running away from the police because I'm I'm afraid because I smoked the joint that I'll go to jail. Um, then it, you get arrested for that you come home and now you're criminalized because it's like you, you are looked at by the school that you went to and the people around you as if that as a person that's returning from jail. Right. And then there's a, there's a certain set of stigmas that are attached to that, that then kind of drive both psychologically and phys- and, and, and in reality um, restrict your agency, right? The places that you can go, the, the, the schools you can attend, the, the boxes you got to fill out on your FAFSA, you know, whatever you are now formally incarcerated, which is a um, which is an issue that we have to address as a as a country. Is that at what point do you allow people uh, full citizenship um, once they serve their time? Right, like, you know, I can remember being denied apartments because of my background. Like, what? I was in Wicker Park, literally on the cover of the Reader. And we had we had dropped an album, and I went and applied to an apartment and. Uh, I was denied the apartment. It was me and my girlfriend. We're sitting there and the guy comes out and he's like, yeah, we do background checks. I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, I gave him all my information and I told him I'm like, yeah, I was arrested, you know, some years back and, and you know, this is what I did. And, you know, and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. We won't rent you. But I, I felt like in the door, he didn't want to rent to me anyway. So I was black and I was trying to move into, into, into a uh, Ukrainian village. I think it was. Um, and yeah. And, and so, I've seen that happen in real life, right? Like I know what that feels like. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fatal blow to like the ego um, and the self-esteem of an individual um, when you, you're doing everything right and 
your your past is 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 used in a way to limit your your agency, and 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 it's only done. It's due to racism, right? It's just that the color of it is, you know, um, it, it's like the the language they use nowadays is not going to be like you, you're not going to see white Tony fountains. I say that often. Um, what you will see is things where they either price you out or they limit your your ability to access through the background. So we're like, all right, what we're gonna have to do is like literally fight this in a real way, um, and and then ensure in, in some way that there's there's um there that this is grounded in, in some form of reparation, right, for the war on drugs. Um, and we began to to organize around that, right. And and, and I think that one of the cool things about democracy is that um, if a, if a decision is being made that affects you. Right. As a voter, as a citizen, you have a right to play a role in how that decision is made. Um, so it was about how do we then bring our folks in? So it's funny you're saying you're using the word cannabis now because they're professionalizing it. But we use the word chronic conversation. Um, we use chronic. Right. Because <laughs> like that's what our folks call it. I'm an 80s baby. I love the album. Dr. Dre is a chronic. And it was relatable. Um, we did our first forum uh, and it was called uh, it was like a cannabis equity talk and nobody showed up. We did a chronic conversation yeah. and it was packed at the brim with folks from the community. Um, and that's what we needed in order to get in front of the, the Stains and the, and the, and the Cassidy's and the Hutchinson's and say like, we're not just saying this as equity and transformation. We're saying this with the base of your supporters or your constituents, right? Um, and these people have the power of vote, right? So they have a right to play a role in how the decision is made around recreational cannabis. Um, so that, is essentially how we began to kind of get involved in it. And there was a lot. And then shout out to, you know, Kim Fox, State's Attorney Kim Fox, um, and, and, and even doing some of the expungements early. Um, I would love to see them get to the 700,000. I think one of the challenges is, is that it's not nuanced enough. And although I think that, that, that a lot of people thought it was going to do a lot for folks, it's been hard to find people who just got arrested once for 30 grams of cannabis, right? Because like I said, it's a cycle, right? People go in at 16 years old, get caught with a joint, um, serve time, come out to resource less communities, right? These communities, most of the um, most of the communities where folks are going back to have, you know, per capita incomes damn near $20,000 below the average per capita income in the city of Chicago, right? That's a real, that's a fact. That's not like made up. Austin, Austin, I think it's like the per capita income was up somewhere around $12,000. Um, and the average is like 36, 37, at least that was in 2018 and whatnot. Right. So they're literally coming back to communities that are economically oppressed with a background and the chances of making it out with a background are even lesser. Right. Because we do this deserving and undeserving thing with high school students, like people that are deserving of interventions and people that are not. Right. So then that, that same person then ends up recidivist recidivist the rec- ends up re you know uh catching a new case i'll put it make it simple right yeah catching a new case or something like that because they're boxed out right now you got to go to the bad boy school right or the bad girls whatever you know what i mean like and, and you start, it starts limiting it, right so then by the time they're 19 and 20 and 21 and whatever now they're what they what the what the system calls career criminals right um and and the cases are no longer mar- marijuana Right. Right. The, the cases have gone. They, they've gotten deeper. So cannabis is often like the first blow. Um, so to get to that 700,000 and for there to be an impact there is going to be it's going to be challenging. There's been a few people um, that, have, that, that have that have seen like full restoration. Um, 
But for the most part, um, I think it's going to be a challenging, it's going to be a challenge actually witnessing that impact um, of the number that was predicted, right? Which I think was like 800,000. Wait, so Richard, let me make sure I'm understanding you correctly. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, all right? Yeah. So yeah. Th- the way I understand what you're saying is you're not just talking about uh, uh, Joey Jones who got busted for having a joint. You're talking about Joey Jones who his first arrest was for having a joint. That set him back. And the next thing you know, uh, I don't know, one thing leads to another and then he's in jail for armed robbery. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that is and, and you're talking about getting his record expunged. Am I correct in, in my understanding oh, of what yeah. you said? Yes, yes, yes. Like I, it, it, there's no way to there's no way to say that like how do you how do you deal with the psychological impact, right, of that arrest? Right? How do you deal with the 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 the, the, the real social constraints that occurred for that individual from the time of that arrest till now right you know what i mean like like if you erase it it doesn't erase the years that you were boxed out of the economy for that arrest mm-hmm. right and because of the fact you're boxed out of the economy because of that arrest oftentimes what happens is that people have to end up like well, our base is essentially informal workers these are these are folks that that have been boxed out of the economy due to backgrounds right due to transphobia, homophobia, sexism, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they enter into the informal market where they can acquire some some form of of, uh, of capital, right, for themselves, right? They can make some ends meet because if you get denied, I had a young man who was denied 18 jobs after his arrest, right? So he became, he, he picked up two drumsticks and a paint bucket, right, and became a bucket boy, right? Um, and, and then so, and, and, and I believe that that's like, that's genius, right? Like that's extremely creative because if the formal system is boxing you out and saying that you're not eligible eligible because of your, your background, um, then folks will enter. And I mean, I think this survivability will, will force you to create new pathways to economy because it's, it's the demand for capital doesn't go away because of your, your arrest. In fact, I think it intensifies, right? Because when you get out, you have to pay back, you have to pay dues, you have to pay fees and fines, you have to pay for a, house monitoring, all of this stuff. At the same time, the state is saying that you're ineligible for student loans, for, for, for jobs at McDonald's, right? So what are you saying to that individual? You're saying that you have to pay these fees back, but you can't work to do it. You know what I'm saying? It's like common sense. Like, you got to, like, we should get, a, we should get, we should rid the, the system of background checks, um, specifically when it comes to black folks in our communities, because it is, it, the only thing it does is it, is it creates more harm. Um, it is I, I can't find or understand one reason where a background check has actually saved a life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Specifically, lives are our folks. Um, it, it, so I mean, I think that's. I think we, I mean, I think that's a whole other. That's a whole other conversation. I'd love to have that conversation sometime. I'm looking at the clock because I knew you got to go. But that's a whole other con- uh, conversation. I definitely think you should have background ch- checks uh, for people who've abused children if they're like trying to become a school bus driver or something like that, or a teacher or a teacher's aide. But th- I don't think you're going in that direction when you said what you just said. Am I correct? We're, we're going to have a whole conversation about this. And I, 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 like, I, like, I like the pushback because I think it's important. So I think that's a conversation people really are going to have to wrestle with, right? Yeah. Like how, 
you know, I'm I'm literally on the cover of the reader. And I'm not saying that I'm speaking from a place of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. On the cover of the reader, BBU drops bell hooks, our pictures on there. I'm in the same neighborhood, Wicker Park. I play I'm I'm on I'm on stage with with, with J. Cole, Eric Badu, all of this stuff. I go to rent an apartment and I got smacked in the face. You know what I'm saying? Now, that, that, that's me with a little bit of social capital. Imagine someone who doesn't have any, doesn't have th- that same level of capital. What would their options be? You know what I'm saying? So I think that like we as a society really got to wrestle with this. Like we have to stop doing this because this is what's creating this, this perpetual, this, this, the racial wealth gap, right? This is what is, this is what is causing it. Right. And I think that things like COVID-19 amplify and bring to the surface the conditions that already existed, right? You look at COVID-19, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pivot there, just mm-hmm. to talk about it a little bit. 70% of the deaths were, were, were black folks. Yeah. And it was, it's predictable because the income gap, the racial wealth gap has is, is been well known. The unemployment statistics, West Garfield Park, young African-American men aged 17 to 24, 81% of them are unemployed in West Garfield Park. I mean, and, and when people say unemployed, they just leave it there, just, just leave it stagnant. This is, this is capitalism. People have to have wages. They, they, they exchange their wage, right? They exchange their labor for a wage to use that wage to acquire subsistence, food, water, shelter. So when you're saying that 81% of a population is unattached to that system that, acquire, that, that provides the wages so that they can buy food, water, and shelter, and it's not, it's not, and it's not looked at like a crisis, right? Like there was a crisis happening in the black community way before COVID, right? And so you see, and, and then I think that when, when, I think we talked about this, the videotape and all this, that, and the other. So when you see people that are not necessarily responding to the to the COVID crisis the way that we would say traditional folks are, it's like maybe you should understand that like these folks are are living in a separate system a system where they were othered way before COVID. So it's not like you can just say, well, this is what you should do because we're doing it and we have the privilege to quarantine and we have the privilege to not do, you know, all this, that, and the other and work from home. And Look, I, I'm living a very privileged life right now. I can admit that. So I think a lot of our work right now is really to get out and, you know, yada, yada. But we can have that conversation. Yeah, that's another. Com- don't get me started about all the different mixed messages. It wasn't just those uh, those the house party on the west side where people were violating the rules we've talked about this on my show a lot richard uh mm-hmm. you had the uh, orthodox jewish community in brooklyn with this massive funeral for a rabbi who died of covid 19 okay that was in new york city yeah. you got the operation gridlock protesters in wisconsin with their maga hats yeah. on all right so <laughs> it, there's a That's lot of people ramble. except it's not it's just a bunch of young black people in Galewood, all right? And then yeah. uh, <laughs> the young black people in Galewood have more in common with those Orthodox Jewish people in Brooklyn than anyone realizes. They think they're yeah. impervious to the disease. Oh, I'm at a funeral. I'm not going to get the disease. You're going to get the disease too, all right? By the way, just yeah. a, a tangent, the picture on the Sun-Times with the guy with the mask in the middle of the party. I was like, the mask, you're in the middle of a party. Anyway, don't get me started, Richard. But it's not just... We're going to chop it up. I, I enjoy the I enjoy the energy of this call, though. I, I do. I uh, do wait, I do. now, Richard, one last thing before you go. I know you got to go somewhere. Um, yeah. And today, uh, the, 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 the papers had stories uh, about getting licenses uh, to 
well, they call them minority vendors. But I, I, I think of the, the, the great uh, discrimination uh, to the black communities of Chicago because that's where the real outrage has been uh, over the last 20 yeah. years in terms of arrest for smoking uh, or possessing uh, marijuana. Uh, so what's the status of our outreach to get uh, more black vendors involved in the cannabis industry? I think it will, right now it's stagnant because Illinois um, delayed, you know, awarding the 75 licenses. So I think a lot of people are just kind of in purgatory waiting to see if they actually receive their license. Right. And I think that for people that have invested a lot of money in this, given money to the state um, and, you know, uh, they, they want their license. Right. And I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of justification there. Um, and I think, I mean, and, and then the outreach has really got to be about like real deep investment. You know what I mean? Like we got to, we got to, there's, there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of exploitation that's taking place. I've got cases where individuals were literally given $25,000. They were, they were, they were, they were dispensary folks that were coming from out of town, posting up at 95th in the red line. So you know who they were targeting, right? Mm-hmm. And they were asking people, are you a veteran? Are you a, are you formerly incarcerated? Did you have an, a, a cannabis arrest? All right come on, you're my social equity applicant. I'm going to give you this $25,000 and we're going to put this application in in your name, right? So I think over the course of the next five years, we're going to see a host of lawsuits. Um, I think that our people, our communities are going to have to be prepared for that. Um, I think, you know, shout out to folks like Brendan Schiller and and, and like the National Lawyers Guild and and Drug Policy Alliance and other folks that are doing some work around the legalese Mm -hmm. that's necessary to protect these social equity applicants right now. But I think at the end of the day, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta cut some of the red tape. The city's gotta cut the red tape. The red tape is killing us. You know, um, the amount of capital that's necessary to, to even walk that line is, is ridiculous. When you were able to back in, you know, two years ago, I'm not saying this is me, but I'm saying people could just buy a pound of weed and sell it. And then, and that's all you needed. That's the genius you needed <laughs> yeah. in order to make money off of this. But they've taken they've taken this 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 um this legacy market. <laughs> Shout out to Lisa for teaching me that word earlier. <laughs> a legacy market, and and then and then and, and credentialized it. Yeah. And so when you look at the history of like you know black economies, it's it's at the point of state intervention where the black community starts to suffer, right? It's it's like FDA, et cetera, et cetera, shut down restaurants and black. I mean, these are these are these are facts, right? So when you credentialize specific things in ways that are like alien to the nature of those things, it it, it, it makes it challenging for small scale businesses to survive, right? So when we're talking about these smaller scale, you know, dispensaries that are popping up, if, if there are some authentic social equity applicants, they're going to be in in the water with sharks, you know, um, and so. We, we have to figure out ways right now to really, how do we protect these new applicants? How do we ensure that our folks are going to invest? And just like, you know, like the, the corner stores that, that pop up in our communities that we erect, the prices may be higher, right? But then we also got to train our folks in to think about how we got to invest in those places regardless in order to keep them afloat um, so that we can have some, some um, social equity applicants or ap- social equity um, dispensaries open in our communities that, that, that can, that can last. Um, right. So Richard, you mentioned the need to protect the social equity applicants. And with the delay in notification, I expect that there are costs being incurred. I hear people are paying thousands of dollars a month for options on properties where they wanted to have their, uh, their dispensary open. So what 
can the state do? What can be done to help protect these applicants, you know, to keep them in play while we're waiting who knows how many months till the state can finish reviewing the applications and grant the licenses? Let's just say, right, recreational cannabis market, um, when it opened up, opening day, they made $3.2 million, right? So far, I don't know how many applicants applied, not even including the cultivation licenses, and have given money to the state, right? Every single one of these applicants have invested money into the state in order to get this license, right? So the state has capital. Not only are they getting capital from the act from the current cannabis sales, which is why people are paying $60 for a gram of weed, which is like wild, right? So not only are they getting tax, taxes from the actual sale of, 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 of cannabis, they're also, getting, they're also getting money from the fees associated with application. So there should be no, there should be no reason why a social ac- equity applicant should suffer. They could easily recoup um, uh, the costs that are impacting social equity applicants right now. Whether they, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it could be as easy as we're going to cut a check. I mean, we saw how quick they cut that stimulus check. I didn't know they had the system in place. Now that I do, I'm like, hey, we can talk about reparations. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, you know, yeah. yeah. We can talk about reparations. Well, like, y'all got a system in place. Because it hit my account. I didn't even know they knew my number. Um, So I think that, I mean, I think that for those, those social equity applicants that are in limbo right now, I think some form of a provision to to to, to ensure sustainability throughout the that this COVID-19 crisis is going to be of, of, of instrumental importance. Um, and and I hope that they land on that. And I imagine that some of the folks and some of the advocates right now should be pushing and should be organizing around that. I don't know how long the suspension will last. Um, it's like we don't know how long this COVID thing will last. But um, my assumption is that there's going to be a lot of costs associated with that. And I believe there will be some response from the social equity, some organized response from social equity applicants in the near future. All right, Richard, I know um, you got to go, so I'm going to let you go, but we're definitely going to bring you back. Uh, this is just the start <laughs> of our conversations, okay? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. And Lisa, Just, I, I just really want to appreciate you and your influence and using your, your platform to, to bring in you know voices like myself and other folks that are in the community um, who wouldn't be heard otherwise. So thank you for inter- introducing me to your audience, Ben. Um, Lisa, thank you for all that you're doing, and I look forward to talking to you all in the future. Great. We look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, that's that's Richard Wallace. He's going to do his thing. Uh, Lisa, uh, now it's just uh, you and me alone. i got to give Richard a shout-out for one thing, uh, having nothing to do with cannabis. The guy knows Zoom. This is the best Zoom conversation I've ever had. And he was the one who said, just turn the pictures off. (laughs) It's unbelievable. (laughs) We yeah. Should, okay. We should, we should, <laughs> Works it's unbelievable. This is the best. I'm gonna. I'm, you know what? Let me just take a moment to take back all the mean, nasty things I've said about Zoom. Okay. All right. I just took them back. <laughs> uh, of course, it's only works if you don't see the people. But uh, uh, one step forward. Uh, all right, Lisa. What news do you have? This is. Um, give us some updates from the reader and from the land of cannabis. Uh, well, the reader. You know, we've got the fearless and innovative Tracy Bame at our helm, who is inspiring the staff to come up with all sorts of creative ideas, started with her reader coloring book. Anyone who wants to support the reader during this time when we've lost almost 90% of our ad revenue because it was focused around public gatherings, can go to chicagoreader.com slash support. 
We have an amazing coloring book with contributions from 50 plus Chicago artists. We have a jigsaw puzzle. And for any of you who've tried to buy a puzzle during stay at home, you found it's very difficult to find them. We've got this really cool puzzle. It's a cover of the reader do not touch issue in a canister that's like a Pringles canister on steroids. You even get the full back, the foil top. Might have just heard me pop it. And then just launched last week is the Reader 420 Companion. It is an amazing book filled with recipes from some of Chicago's top chefs. Literally, some have been on Top Chef. And some different cannabis um, coaches have given us recipes also. And local artists, some of whom are internationally renowned, have contributed drawings for coloring pages. We've got activities. So go to chicagoreader.com slash support and get some amazing reader uh, books for the puzzle and support us during this time. All right. And, then- and we appreciate everyone who's been doing it. We have just had phenomenal, you know, support and we really appreciate it. So thank you to everyone who's given and check out the new product. Yeah. Uh, and uh, pretty soon we'll be having the greatest hits issues. I don't know when that's coming up. Coming up really soon. Lior Galil, I think, is up first. Uh, and uh, next week, next week, it'll okay. be a PDF download because it's too big, I think, to have in print. Yeah. But it is going to be phenomenal. Yeah. So you can also go to chicagoreader.com/support to buy a download link. Yeah. And uh, so, any news you want to uh, leave us with on the cannabis front, Lisa? Anything? Any uh, breaking news that people should know about on that front? I think the biggest frustration is what Richard alluded to is that the new recreational licenses that were expected to be announced have now been pushed back indefinitely. They had 4,000 applications to sort through for multiple licenses, but it's just, it's very difficult because a lot of people put a lot of money into this and we understand the state is stretched and hopefully they can find ways to get things set up and have this all done from home so people can move forward. And as we've talked about on many shows, that line between recreational and medical is very blurred. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but applications for medical cards have skyrocketed. We have a lot of people doing telemedicine now that that is legal. So you can actually get your card through a phone call in less than a day. And people are doing that because the dispensaries have really limited their medical sales. But again, people using it for so-called recreational purposes, many of them are using it to, to de-stress, to especially during the current situation. So hopefully we can move forward. Yeah. You know, you've got liquor stores open. We want people to be able to access their cannabis. Uh, yeah, I've... And keep patients safe. I, 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 on a, on a, personally, I've never really seen... The distinction between uh, medicinal cannabis and recreational cannabis, I always sort of laughed at because the whole point of smoking reefer is it gives you, it gets you high. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, it's just, it's how some people well, deal it with it. It depends how much you use. You know, it's like having a drink. Are you having one glass of wine or are you drinking the whole bottle? Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I understand that some people overindulge in uh, in anything, but uh, but yeah, they made that distinction, uh, and that was the first foothold, medicinal uh, cannabis, 
Now, right. Uh, so now we're recreating. And I remember uh, early on, at least I know I've shared this with you before, when I was first writing those uh, legalized reefer stories, the medicinal community was re- reluctant to join a board. Uh, they're like, you know, this is going to... Uh, this is going to bring out all the told you souls because see what happened when medicinal was legalized uh there it was as though they were saying all right the people who were against that were saying that this is just the first step toward legalizing it all together so they were against medicinal for that reason and the medicinal community was like no 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 we're just here for medicinal purposes uh and i actually believed that the opponents were right it was i mean it was so illogical to have laws against cannabis anyway so it was just a gradual right. thing an evolutionary thing yeah for it would start with medicinal and then all of a sudden hey why do we why even the pretense uh and this is something we're probably going to talk about probably some other time i'm going to um we're going to get a, a little political discussion in one of these cannabis conversations because one of the things uh that irritates me about uh, joe biden and he's the head of the Democratic Party, and I say this on the show all the time, Lisa, I'm going to vote for him, all right? So just everybody relax. Just, I, I believe that it's absolutely essential that we uh, no longer have Donald Trump as our president. But one of the things that uh, I'm uh, upset about him is that he won't come out for the full legalization of cannabis. He's still holding back on that. So maybe we should have a, a political discussion about this because the political fight is not over yet. I keep saying, you know what? I want him to watch the movie Grass, that one that came out in 1999, and then I want to hear him speak as to why he's not ready to, you know, promote full legalization. And the other issue, though, when you say there were some people when you were writing about, hey, let's legalize some people who were, you know, believed in the medicinal value, said, ah, we don't know if we want rec coming in. There are some states that had issues that when they moved from from medical to include rec, patients couldn't get enough product. So Illinois, these women, our legislators that Richard referenced, were so meticulous in working on the adult use law, doing everything they could to protect the medical program, Mm -hmm. because while plenty of people have cards to help with lesser ailments, and it really does give them a lot of relief, so I believe everyone should have access to it, there are people where it is the only thing that will reduce the number of seizures or the only thing to give them relief from very, very painful, horrible conditions where traditional pharma was failing them. Mm-hmm. So it is a very difficult balancing act. And as we talked about before, they did intend to keep the market tight and to keep supply short to allow room for these equity applicants to get their businesses up and running, whether they be cultivators, producers, or retail dispensary owners. So it's very difficult. There was no perfect answer to do this. And I do believe that Illinois is doing one of, you know, is one of the best states, if not the best in the rollout, but it's very tricky. And there are so many moving pieces and a lot of it has been about compromise to get to where they have. So again, I applaud them for their efforts and wish we could get people like Biden and other legislators on board. So they're working with these people, not fighting against them on what is truly right and will be in the best interest of all their constituents. Well put. That's Lisa Solomon. Lisa, thanks so much for uh, always doing setting up these cannabis conversations. I also want to thank Richard Wallace, who uh, uh, was a great guest. And uh, you take care, Lisa. Stay safe and sound, all right? 
Thank you, Ben. You too. And bye, Dennis. Bye. That's another bonus show. Take care, everybody. Lisa, you still there? No, she's gone. <laughs>